All right, uh, Matthew chapter 5. If you have a Bible this morning and want to follow along in that, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. I'm also going to have it on the screen today because uh, I'm using a little bit of a different translation from the one in your pew rack because I liked the ESV today for these verses. Um, which I generally don't, but today I did. So we're looking at some words, just a short passage this morning. They're words that come out of the mouth of Jesus. And every time Jesus talks, amazing stuff comes out of his mouth, obviously. These just happen to be some of my personal favorites. These words just, I, they just encourage my soul. They remind me of who I am and who we are as a church. And they, they push me forward to want to be the man and also the church family that I believe God is calling us to be. And so let's take a look this morning at what Jesus has to say. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. He says this. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This morning, Jesus is going to talk to us about four things I want to point out that come out of this passage. First of all, our calling. Second of all, a warning. Third, a revealing. And finally, an empowering. So we've got calling, warning, revealing, and empowering. I'm trying to rhyme today, help you come along with me on this journey. First of all, let's talk about our calling and what Jesus says about it. He uses two very powerful images in this passage, and the first one is salt. And that just rocks you, right? Because there's nothing more powerful in your life than salt. I mean, wow, right? Well, before we get to the use of salt in Jesus' day, does anyone know what the number one use of salt is in our day? Any guesses? How is salt most often used in our world Roads is the right answer. Correct answer to Amy to share in the front row. Right. Good work. That's what happens when you look at your husband's notes the night before. No, I don't think she did actually. Good job, honey. Roads. 51% of salt sold in the U.S. is used to de-ice roads. But that was not the case in Jesus' day. Right? Jesus did not believe in de-icing roads, nor do we as good Portland, Oregon citizens. <laughs> Being biblical all over the place up in here. All right. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't need to de-ice their roads, but they had discovered that salt had the ability to destroy bacteria. And so the primary use of salt in Jesus' day was the preservation of food. They used salt to preserve their food. And in a world without refrigeration, this made salt extremely valuable. In fact, there was actually a book a while back. It was on the New York Times bestseller list. It was called Salt, A World History. A riveting read, if you want to read something. It was by, by a guy named Mark Kurlansky. And Kurlansky describes the value of salt in the ancient world. And he says this. He says, most ancient cities were dependent on salt for survival. 
It was like an essential thing. In order to survive in the ancient world, your city had to have salt in order for you to make it because the preservation of food was such an important thing. He talks about how salt was so powerful that it was something empires went to war over. They would war over salt. And if you think about a substance in our world that empires have gone to war over, you'd most likely think of oil, right? And now you're getting an idea of just how valuable salt was. The Latin word for salt is the word sal, and it's where we get our word salary from, um, because salt was often used as a form of payment. Rome used to pay their soldiers in salt. How many of you have heard the expression, is he or is she worth their Salt, that's where this expression comes from. It comes right out of biblical times. And so we have salt, this valuable, persevering substance. But Jesus also says, you are light. You are the light of the world. And light is another thing that we do not understand in the same way that the people of the first century did. And here's why. We live in a world of electricity. We live in a world where light is just the flip of a switch away, where we take for granted light in our lives. Why? Because we rarely have to live in darkness. In fact, Christmas Eve this year was a night I was reminded of this. You'll remember back a few weeks, Christmas Eve, it was a Sunday. We had a mini ice storm that morning. And uh, some of you used that as an excuse to skip out on church. We know who you are. Um, I just want to say that's weak and wimpy. It was not that much ice. But because of the ice storm, that night, uh, there was a power outage in our neighborhood. Our entire, John, did you guys have power that night? Nope. I see. Yeah. Our whole neighborhood, the power went out completely dark. And friends, when there aren't street lights shining in and there aren't digital clocks or power buttons glowing, when it's really dark, that's when all of a sudden you realize the power of a single candle. You see, we don't often have to survive by candlelight, but all of a sudden when it's really dark, you realize just how much light even one candle puts off. And in the ancient world, people understood this. They knew the power and the value of light. So Jesus says, you church. And by the way, when Jesus says you, in both of these instances, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, it's a plural you. It's a collective you. All of you join together, he says. He's talking to all of us. He's talking to us as a group. And that makes sense, right? Because no one ever just uses one grain of salt. Do you? Like pass the salt and you pick out one grain, right? Because one grain of salt all by itself has very little impact, right? We don't experience light one particle at a time, but it's when these grains and these particles come together that salt and light can have tremendous impact. So Jesus says, church, you working together, moving together in this world are like these two very practical, powerful, valuable things, salt and light. You can impact this world that you live in. But that raises the question, What does it mean to be salt and light? What kind of impact does Jesus want us to have? What does it look like to be salty and shiny? 
Well, friends, I believe Jesus gives us the answer. He gives us a clue because this passage sits right on the heels of another famous passage. The passage immediately uh, before it, verses 1 through 12, are called the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus talks about the kingdom life. He talks about the heart of someone who has experienced him. He talks about the posture and values of someone who is following Jesus. And he says this. He says, this is what the kingdom life looks like. He says, kingdom people are people of grace and mercy. Kingdom people are those who don't look to power and position and privilege and wealth to define their lives. They aren't about achievement or impressing or boasting. Instead, people of the kingdom, beatitude people, are people of righteousness. They long for things in this world to be right with God. In fact, Jesus says they hunger for righteousness. They thirst for righteousness. They want to be right and they want this world to be right all the way down into their guts. Jesus says secret agendas and selfish motivations don't drive kingdom people. But instead, they strive for the peace of God. For the good of others. They're pure in heart. They follow God even when it costs them. He says, even when they're persecuted, they will do the right thing and they will follow the Lord. Jesus says, kingdom people find their joy, their hope, their peace. Not in how things are going moment by moment in this world. They find their hope in the eternal promises of God. And for this reason, they have comfort even amidst Extreme sadness. And so we have this picture that Jesus paints. That he has come to offer a life focused on something greater and deeper and bigger and stronger than the pleasures of this world. And what he says time and time again throughout the Beatitudes is this. If you'll embrace this kingdom, his kingdom, if you'll live this way, if you'll follow him, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed. You'll have deep, rich, full blessing in your life. But more than that, in our passage today, Jesus says, you won't just be blessed. You'll also be a blessing. You'll be salt and light. You'll be this amazing, preserving, illuminating force on a dark, decaying planet. You see, that's our calling to live this kingdom life as salt of the earth, light of the world. Not huddled here together, not just in and amongst ourselves, but out there in the world, in our families, in neighborhoods, in work environments. Jesus says, go, be salt in the earth, be light in the world. At sports gatherings and birthday parties and community functions, wherever you go, you just be salty and you just be shiny. President Woodrow Wilson tells this story, and for whatever reason, I, I love this story. Um, I think it illustrates this, this call that we have as people and as a community to be salt and light. Here's what, here's what Woodrow Wilson says. He says, I was in a very ordinary, everyday place. I was sitting in a barber chair when I became aware that a different kind of person had entered the room. A man had come quietly in upon the same errand as myself to have his hair cut and sat in the chair next to me. Every word the man uttered showed a personal interest in the one who was serving him. 
And before I got through with what was being done for me, I was aware that I had attended an evangelistic service because Mr. D.L. Moody was in that chair. I purposely lingered in the room after he had left and noted the singular effect that his visit had brought upon the barbershop. They talked in undertones. They didn't know his name, but they knew that something had elevated their thoughts. And I felt that I left that place as I should have left a place of worship. You see, this is exactly what Jesus is telling us. He's saying, if you embrace the kingdom life, if you adopt a kingdom heart, if you offer your goals and dreams and aspirations to Jesus, he will use you one grain, one particle at a time to change this world. And friends, that's our calling. That's who we are called to be, salt and light. But then Jesus offers us a warning. Amidst our calling, he says, be warned. Here's how he says it. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Again, Jesus uses an image here that would have been very common for the people of his day. They would have all been very familiar with what he was talking about because salt in the ancient world was mined out of the ground and it was purchased in a bag. You would go and purchase your salt. You would buy a bag of salt. But because the refining process back then was not as advanced as ours today, most, if not all, of the salt you received was mixed with a bunch of other minerals as well. So you would buy a bag of salt, but you'd actually get salt plus, salt plus a bunch of other minerals. It was not pure. And sometimes what would happen is that you'd actually end up with a bag of salt that didn't have much salt in it at all. And this was most often the result of exposure to moisture. You see, some of you know this. Some of you are chemists out there. Salt, which is sodium chloride, is a very soluble thing. It mixes really easily with water. So if your bag of salt came into contact with some water, the water would actually suck out. It would leach the sodium chloride out and leave only the other minerals behind. And when this happened, and it often did because they did not have saran wrap or Ziploc baggies back then, people would say, oh darn, my salt has lost its saltiness. And then what they would do is they would spread the remaining minerals on the pathways and roadways around their home. Because those remaining minerals would also suck up moisture. And they wanted to prevent the pathways and roadways around their home from getting wet and soppy and muddy when it rained. And so they would literally spread it out on the roads where men and people would walk along. And so this is why Jesus says it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And all the people are going, that's exactly what we do with our saltless salt. And again, this is a very familiar passage. We've heard it before, and it seems so common. And yet, do not miss the point. Do do not miss the extremely poignant point that Jesus is making here. He's warning us that in the same way the saltiness can be leached out of the salt of this world, the world wants to pull the kingdom heart out of your life. 
In the same way that the saltiness can be leached out of salt, this world wants to, wants to pull and suck the kingdom heart out of your life. Jesus says it's real easy. It is real easy to be living as salt, to think that you are salt, to be living as a Christ follower, to say you're a Christian, to go to church, only to discover that all the beatitude values and focus have been sucked out of your life by the pressures of this world. He says it this way in Mark chapter 4. These are, again, the words of Jesus. He says, be careful, be warned, because the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. This world wants to suck the saltiness out of your life. Warning, church, Jesus says. Wealth is deceiving. Desires of the heart are enticing. Worry can feel all-consuming. Friends, what is pulling you away from the Beatitude Kingdom life today? What's trying to rob you of your saltiness? What is offering you appealing but temporary pleasure? What is offering you pseudo-fulfillment that will not last? What is conning you with a satisfaction that will disappear tomorrow? What is trying to take your saltiness for the kingdom from you? Jesus also says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And again, in first century Israel, a lamp would look something like this. Poor families would have one, maybe two of these lamps. And in the evening, they would light this lamp. It's just really a candle. It's a linen wick floating in olive oil. They would put it on the lampstand in the middle of the house. If families were too poor, they would flip over their bushel basket and they would put the lamp on top of their bushel basket. And some of you are now making the connection to the song. Hide it under a bushel. Yeah, see, again, the first service was really weak in the no too. Like, like... The Sunday school kids really yell that, like, hide under the bush. No, we won't hide it. You guys are kind of like, well, we might hide it. That's a little bummed. I'm kind of disappointed in that, actually. At any rate, um, so these poor families, they flip over their bushel basket, and Jesus, it's, it's like he's saying, what if instead of putting your lamp on your basket, you put your basket on your lamp? And people are going, that would be crazy. That would be silly. That would be foolish. And Jesus says, in the same way. Don't let anything cover up or snuff out this life of blessedness that you have been called to live and offer the world. Don't let anything come near, um, kind of covering up the, the lamp, the light of Christ that lives in you. That's the warning. The warning is the world wants to steal your saltiness. The world wants to cover up and distinguish your light, the light of Christ, this life of blessedness, this beatitude, kingdom existence that you were called to live and created for. That's the warning. The world is after it. So we have our calling, and then we have this warning, and now it's time for the revealing. And for this, for this point, I want to focus in on one little statement that Jesus makes. It's right in the middle of this passage. You've read it many times before. You've probably read right over it. And I'm, I'm guessing you probably do not know everything that's behind it. But this is cool stuff. This is maybe my favorite part of the whole sermon. Jesus says this. Right in the middle of this passage, he says, A city on a hill cannot be 
hidden. You put a city on a hill, you can't hide it. You're always going to see it. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, to completely understand what Jesus is after here, what he's actually saying, we have to dig into a little history, we have to dig into a little archaeology. If you've been around here for a while, you know, I love this kind of stuff. There are maps and pictures coming. Yes, here we go. You guys remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the ruler of Israel when Jesus was born, when Mary and Joseph had Jesus born as a baby in Bethlehem. Who was the ruler? His name was Herod the Great. Herod the Great. He was ruling. He was a bad dude, right? Jesus is born. Um, Herod says, I'm king of the Jews, and he tries to have Jesus killed. So Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt. While they're in Egypt, Herod dies. Herod the Great dies. And now Herod's sons, his three sons, are vying for his kingdom. And so all three of Herod's kids travel to Rome to sort of plead their case to Caesar. And they're all saying, hey, Caesar, I want to take my dad's kingdom. Hey, Caesar, I want to take my dad's kingdom. And Caesar's going to make the call. And eventually Caesar decides, I'm not giving this whole kingdom to any one of you. I'm going to divide some things up. And so he divides it up like this. And the, the, the region up in the northeast, the orange region there, he gives to Herod's first son, a guy by the name of Herod Philip. You're going to notice that all of Herod's kids are named Herod, which just sort of shows what a narcissist he was. But this one's Herod Philip. He gets this region. The second region is given to a guy named Herod Archelaus. And Archelaus, Herod was like a bad guy. Archelaus was just as bad as his father. And if you remember the story, Mary and Joseph are coming back from Egypt with Jesus. Where are they headed? They're headed back to Bethlehem. But then they learn that Archelaus is ruling in Judea. And they go, we can't go where Archelaus is is ruling. And so they reroute and they go up north to Galilee, which leads us to our third region. It's actually two smaller regions. Um, The two purple sections are given to and are now ruled by um, Herod's third son, Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is who I want to talk to you a little bit about this morning. Because Jesus lived and grew up in Galilee, the northern purple region up there. And he grew up under the rule of Herod Antipas. In fact, all of his earthly ministry, when he gets into ministry and he's cruising around Galilee and he has conflict with the rulers and leaders there, his conflict is is with this Herod, Herod Antipas. Um, When Herod was 12 years old, Herod Antipas, his father, Herod the Great, sent him to Rome. And he said, I want you to go there. I want you to get educated. I want you to learn from Caesar. And by the way, friends, Caesar was a builder. This is Caesar Augustus. He's like the greatest Caesar, the greatest emperor of the Roman kingdom. And Caesar um, would build things, kind of to show how powerful and great he was. Caesar once said this, When I saw Rome, it was built of brick. When I finished with it, it was made of marble. You see, Caesar knew all about building things, about building cities that were monuments to his kingdom. And Herod Antipas learned from him. He learned from the master. So when he came back as a young ruler in this region of Galilee, he decided, like Caesar, I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to build myself a city. And he determined that the city he was going to pour his resources into was the city of Sepphoris. Sepphoris, he said, would be his monument, the monument to his kingdom. And it was one impressive place. 
Roman cities were always laid out with a main north-south street. It was called the Cardio. In Sepphoris, this street was 44 feet wide. It was stone-paved. It had an elaborate sewage system running underneath it. They started excavating it in about 1980. And all the archaeologists said, just from the main street alone, you could tell that this city was a masterpiece. Roman cities also had a main east-west street, and the north-south street and the east-west streets formed sort of a grid. And the closer you were to the center of a Roman city, the more important you were. You could walk into a Roman city and figure out who's important and who's not just by, by finding out who lives where. So, of course, at the very center of this city, Herod built an enormous palace for himself. It had a huge gymnasium, public baths, pools lined with marble. It had a bank and a temple. And then the, cl- the crown jewel of the whole thing was this theater that seated 4,000 people. You've heard of people building houses and putting in like a, a home theater room. Herod like did that times 10. He went to town. You can see, here's the, the picture on the lower right is the excavation of that theater. Up on the left is an artist's rendering of what it would have looked like in the first century. This place was dialed out. Herod had like a 67-inch flat-screen TV in there, the ancient version of that at least. Um, This city, friends, Sepphoris, was unlike any city that Galilee had ever seen. See, Galilee is the country. Galilee is this region that is, is filled with meager little towns and peasant villages. And now, all of a sudden, Herod comes along and he builds this city made of marble. You see, everyone in Galilee knew about Sepphoris, especially Jesus. Because you see, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And Sepphoris and Nazareth were only four miles apart. You can see it on the map there. Sepphoris was one hour, a one-hour walk from where Jesus grew up. I'm going to show you a couple more pictures here. These are some of the remains of, of Sepphoris. They started again excavating in 1980. In this picture, this next one, you can see that Herod intentionally built it up on the top of this hill because he wanted everyone to be able to see it. He wanted everybody to be able to see this monument to himself, to know how how great and wonderful he was as a leader. Here's a view of that same hill, that same city from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. And there's kind of this, there's this, this valley that ran between Nazareth all the way to Sepphoris. And if you look, the red arrow there shows we're looking from Nazareth. That's the view towards Sepphoris. And it was right there, right on top of that hill. Josephus, who was kind of a, a famous historian during that time, he said, Sepphoris was the ornament of Galilee. But do you know what they called it down in Nazareth? The city on the hill that cannot be hidden. The city on the hill that cannot be hidden. And not only that, friends, this city was built. It was constructed on the backs of the Israelite people. Herod, we're told, conscripted, hired, recruited workers from the entire surrounding area to come and build this city for him. The word that's used is the word tecton. It's a word for craftsmen. It says Herod conscripted tectons from the entire surrounding area. Now check this out. We know that Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, was a 
carpenter, and so Jesus would have been raised in his father's footsteps to be a carpenter. What do you think is the New Testament word for carpenter used over and over again? Three guesses, and the first two don't count. It's the word tecton. Friends, in other words, scholars say, it's almost certain that when Jesus was a boy, he and his father would take that long one-hour walk from Nazareth. That four-hour or that four-mile hike up to Sepphoris, and they would spend their days working on this monument to a man whose life was all about the building of his own kingdom, a man who was all about wealth and power and position and prestige, a man who was building a city so that everyone could see who he was and what he was all about. You see, if you wanted to know what Herod Antipas' life was all about, all you had to do was take a look at Sepphoris. Sepphoris told the whole story. This man's life was about building and gaining an earthly kingdom. It was about getting as much as he could possibly get, wielding as much power as he could wield, living as lavishly as he could live, having as much comfort as he could have, impressing people as much as he could possibly impress them. Friends, Herod Antipas, his entire life in this city was just about saying, look at me, I'm VIP. I'm a very important person. You see, when you looked At that city on the hill, when you saw its lights shining at night, there was no doubt about what Herod was living for. And Jesus says to you and me, your life is no different. The same is true for you. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You cannot hide what your life is really about. You may not have built a monument. You may not not be constructing a city, but people all around you can look right at you. They can look right at your life and they they can see so very clearly exactly who and what you're living for. What your life stands for, what it represents, what you're shining out for this world to see. It cannot be hidden. You see, the people of Galilee, they would look at Herod and they'd say, we can all see clearly what his life's about. All of us here in Galilee, we're real familiar with Herod. And here's the truth, Jesus says, people can see what your life's all about too. That's why Jesus immediately follows that declaration with these words. Let your life, again, plural you, you church, you followers of Jesus, you who have entered into the kingdom, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You see, we have our calling, we have this warning, then there's this revealing. You see, our lives reveal who and what we're living for. And then finally, Jesus says, there's an empowering. There's a way that we can and cannot live into the calling that we have received. And he says, live your life in such a way that your heavenly father gets the praise and glory for how you are living. Friends, you have to understand that God gets the praise when we live like salt and light. Because only he can empower a salt and light life. I'll say that again. 
God gets the praise when we live like salt and light because only he can empower a salt and light life. The message of the Beatitudes is not try really hard, do your best to live this way, work really hard at taking on this heart posture or this position or living your life this way. The message of the Beatitudes is this is how you will live your life when you are overwhelmed and consumed and fully surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord. The message here is not try really hard. The message is, here is you can't try hard enough. The message here is left to your own devices, you will eventually veer from the path and you will begin to construct a Sepphoris for yourself unless you lean on and rely on the power and grace of God. Only God can make you and me and us salt and light in this world. Listen to this verse. This is from John chapter one. This is about the birth of Jesus. And it says this about him. It says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. You see, here's the truth. You're just a lamp. He's the flame. You're just a rock. He's the sodium chloride. You can't produce the flame or the salt yourself. The message of the gospel is not try harder. The message of the gospel is surrender more, yield more, lay down more. You see, there are things that flow out of us when we surrender to Jesus, when we give him control, when we are led by the Spirit. You see, friends, the job is not to try harder on your own. It's to lean into him and let him live through you. And that's why, friends, starting in February, the first Sunday of February, we're asking all of you to get into a community group for six weeks because we're going to do a six-week series called Life in the Spirit. What it looks like to live a life surrendered to and controlled by the Spirit of God so that we can be the salt and light that we are called to be as people and as a community. But maybe one of the first steps of that process is just the act of surrender. It's just the declaration of saying, I don't want to live for me. I don't want to be in control. And one of the places we do that, in fact, I would argue one of the first places we should do that is in the waters of baptism. This morning, we have three people getting baptized spent time with all three and they're all wonderful stories. You heard from Rachel earlier. And there's Caitlin. She's one of our middle school kids who has just decided that she didn't want to walk this journey on her own. And then there's a little Paige, one of our elementary school girls who has a faith that's just on fire that encourages me and challenges me. These are three people that say like, I do want to be salt. I do want to be light, but I need God. I need the death and resurrection of Jesus alive in me, driving me so that I have a chance to have the kind of impact and influence in this world that I was born to have. So this morning, friends, most of the time we close our services with communion. This morning, we're going we're gonna to engage a different sacrament. We're going to engage baptism and we're going to encourage and we're going to celebrate. And along with these folks, we're going to remember and declare again, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is what I need to fuel my life. And so maybe there's a chance for you to just surrender to him again, to lay down your life again, to say, I don't want to build a Sephiroth for me. I want to shine and I want to be salty for Jesus in this world because I want my grain of salt and my particle of light to count for something eternal, to count for his kingdom. So I'm going to ask those of you who are being baptized to head on back. I'm going to join you back there in just a minute. 
I'm going to close us with a word of prayer. Allie and the team are going to lead us in some worship and we're going to celebrate baptism together this morning as a church family. Is that all right? Father, this morning we ask for your blessing and anointing on these folks who are declaring you as Lord and Savior and King. Your word says, if we declare with our mouths that you are Lord and believe in our hearts that you were raised from the grave, Lord Jesus, that we will be saved, that we will become your children, that we can walk in your kingdom, that we can have the gift of your Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can be salt and light in this world. Lord, we pray for these folks that they would continue to walk with you. We ask God for our church that we would be a community that is increasingly salty and shiny in just the right ways so that this world would be influenced and impacted for you, Lord Jesus, that they would know your grace and love and truth and hope. We want to be a part of that. We thank you for the gift of being your kids. We love you. We thank you and we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.